picture of all time is to be found in the Old Testament book of Esther. You probably, to be honest, you probably know, given that we looked at Esther not that long ago, the congregation, you probably know the, the, the chapter quite well. Queen Esther is seeking to save her people. Uh, but to do this, what she has to do is she has to enter the courtroom of the king. Do you remember this? She has to enter the courtroom of the king, Xerxes, something she's forbidden from doing without permission. you remember it? If you do remember it, you remember there's all of this tension. There's all of suspense uh, as Esther enters. Uh, only what happens? Xerxes looks up from his throne. He sees Esther and she enters and he looks and sees her appropriately dressed. Do you remember this? She is wearing the garments of monarchy and he sees her look like this. And what happens? His heart goes out to her. He cares for her and he, he permits her to live. He permits her to speak. It's a beautiful section of Holy Scripture. Well, we don't we have in that scripture in Esther really the predicament of humanity in a nutshell. Our king, the great triune God. He is pure and holy. And what is man's situation? What is humanity's situation? As we enter the world, we are forbidden from access into God's presence because of the failing of our hearts. Isn't that right? That mankind is excluded from the courtroom of God above because of the sin and the wickedness and the evil eh, of our nature eh, because of our hearts. Well, this evening... In this portion of scripture, I think we're going to see more of the character of God, more of what the Bible calls actually the splendor of his holiness. We're going to see that. But in this section of scripture tonight, we're also going to be shown the garments. We're going to be shown the clothing that we must wear if we are ever going to have safe and eternal access to our King, our God. And the first thing that I want us to notice from this portion of scripture, or the first thing that we see really, is a people hoping for propitiation. A people hoping for propitiation. So what I mean by that? Well, if you were here last Sunday, you will remember, if nothing else, that we come to this on the back of what was a remarkable chapter last week. Were you here? Do you remember what happened? The Ark of the Covenant of God had been captured by the Philistines. Do you remember it? What had God done? God had turned against his enemies and he had inflicted them with, with diseases, with illness, with chaos and even with death. It was a pretty brutal portion of scripture last week. Well, what, what, what happens this time out? Well, not to put too fine a point on it here, the Philistines have just had enough. You know, like they've got to the, the end of their tether now with, with the ark. And so they come up with a plan. And it's a plan not just to send the ark back to Israel, but to do so with some gifts for God. Now, did you notice what the gifts were for Yahweh here? We've got some golden tumors and golden rodents, golden mice. That's that's pretty disgusting, isn't it really? Uh, I don't know what you're planning on getting a loved one for Christmas. I don't know if that has crossed your mind. I am assuming none of us in here are planning on buying a carving of a rat uh, for 
a loved one. Don't want it. Okay, so it's disgusting in some senses. Let me say this though. Actually what we see here, I think, is the Philistines displaying some great theological understanding, some great theological thinking from the Philistines. Because consider this first thing, right? Consider that they understand that an offering is necessary to God. Now look with me to verse 3. Now remember, these are the enemies of God. And what do they call these rodents and the tumors? And Look at it, verse 3, they call it guilt offering. So they understand they're guilty before God, right? They understand they have offended Yahweh. Then... What do they, come on, let's get to the root of it. What do they hope to achieve by giving God these golden rodents? Look at it in verse 5. They actually say this, they say, perhaps we do this, if we give God this stuff, he's going to lighten his, his hand from us. Do you see what they're hoping? They're hoping if we give God these things, he's going to turn his anger away. Like he's maybe, if we give him these offerings, he's going to divert the wrath that he has on us. He's going to divert it somewhere else. He's not going to be angry. Now what's that, people? Come on. Like theologically speaking, theological language, what is this? You know, this, this idea of being able to divert and turn God's anger away from us. What's that? What's the word? It is propitiation. Diverting God's wrath away. And, and wait a minute, who are these people? These are the Philistines. The enemies of God. And even they understand the need they have for propitiation. So it's good, isn't it? Isn't that amazing? But then think about this. They also seem to understand here that offerings like this, they can be representative. Let me, let me speak. We've only got a few boys and girls in here just now, but... Maybe an Alan and Shona and this mob down the front here can listen for a second. Now, here's a real test, okay? This is not an easy one. It was an easy one this morning, difficult one tonight. How many golden mice did they have to offer? Anyone know? Look at that. And did you get any help with that? A little bit, I think, yes. Five golden mice, five golden tumors. Friends, do you see why it was five? Have a look at verse 17 to see why it was five. Look at this. It's one for each of the cities of Philistine. Do you see it's one for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Eshkel, one for Gath, one for... Like, do you see the point? Do you see what's happened here with the Philistines? They've looked at the people of Israel and they've seen how Israel relates to a holy God. You see, they've looked on, they've seen that God accepts representative sacrifices. That They've looked on, they've seen, oh wait a minute, the high priest is gone and he's offered sacrifices on behalf of the people. So do you see it? The pennies drop, they need a propitiatory sacrifice. It can be representative and we're thinking, this is the Philistines. And they understand this, this is good theological thinking, right? Do you see the problem? Do you see the problem? God had revealed to his people that such was his holiness that he could not accept any animal except a clean animal. So not rodents, not rats, but rams. And what else had God shown Israel? That he, such is his holiness and his perfection, he could never accept just a bull. 
could never just be a carving. What had to happen to the animal? The animal's lifeblood had to be spilt if sin was ever going to be dealt with. Do you see what's happening here? The Philistines are close, but no cigar. No cigar. Now let's, let's apply what we've got here. I, I wonder this, honestly, if you think of this portion of scripture. What are you thinking just now? Are you thinking boring? Like, do you think this is, look at all this, like, animal offerings and sacrifices. Do you think this is archaic, man? This is, this is distant. You thinking that, let, let, listen, the problem in 1 Samuel chapter 6 is the problem of humanity today. It is exactly the same problem for the city of London. Let me say this, and this is an unpopular thing to say. But see, society today, it still believes in God. And like people, if they were here tonight, they would argue, their friends would argue with that, wouldn't they? Some of them would refute that idea. They would deny that they believe in God, wouldn't they? they deny it even to themselves. But what do we know from Scripture? God has put eternity into the hearts of men. That even if they do not understand that they do this, that people believe in God. Now, they believe in God. What, what is it that humanity does? Does this. It's making offerings all the time to God. That's what's happening in London. People don't realize it, do they? Not at all. They don't see that that's what they're doing. But by trying to live in a certain way, and by maybe aligning themselves to another faith and observing the religious rules, what are people doing? They're making offerings all the the time to God. Now, what is the fundamental problem with that? It's the same problem here. People today are underestimating the holiness of God. Isn't that it? That they think by living in a certain way, by observing a few rules, that they will be able to make an offering that covers their sin. And what do you know? What do I know? Such is God's splendor. That's not how it works. It's not how it works. I wonder if that's depressing for you tonight. That no matter what humanity does, that we cannot summon up and make an offering sufficient to cover our sin. Is it depressing? Hear the gospel. Because what has God done? What has he done? God has looked at us in our sin and he has given us the offering. Although the offering is coming back to us, what has God done? He's saying, here it is. Here's the sufficient offering. Is this? What do we see in the life and the death of Jesus? We see a... An unblemished sacrifice. An appropriate offering. A pure offering. It's a representative offering on behalf of his people. And what happens through the death of Jesus Christ? His lifeblood is spilt. And listen. God's wrath and anger is turned away. Now, I want you to see, that's not just a nice theological truth. I want you to consider that for yourself just now. Listen to what I'm saying to you. You no longer face the anger of God in Christ Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? No matter how long you live as a Christian, as you go into eternity, because of what Christ has done, you will never face the true displeasure of a holy God. Isn't that, isn't that reason for joy for us just now? Isn't it? All because of the sufficiency, not of a tumor and a rap, but a sufficiency 
of the offering Christ has made on your behalf. So a people hoping for propitiation. The second thing that we notice here is a people hoping for proof. A people hoping for proof. I love <laughs> the next, uh, the middle section of this portion of scripture. I really, I love, uh, but I had to read it a couple of times before I, before I, uh, before I even worked out what was going on. So let's not make a mistake. It's not that the Philistines, they've got the plan, don't they? The ark is going on a cart. It's not just that they take the ark and they pop it on a cart and send it off uh, to Israel. Is that how you read it? I, that's how I read it. For us. Not, do you see what the Philistines are wanting? The Philistines here want proof. You see, they want to know whether all of these tumors and death and chaos, if it really was the work of God, or whether, did you notice the word in the text, or whether it's just a great coincidence. Is it, did God really do this? Or is it just the fact that the ark was here for the exact amount of time that we've all been getting ill and people have been dying? So they want proof. Has God done this to us or not? So what do they do? What do they do? They conduct an experiment. It's what the Philistines do. Now, for years and years and years, when I was a little boy, uh, my dad, my father was a, a, a designated marker for uh, exams for, for schools. So about this time of year, what would happen is the doorbell would go and it'd be the postie and he'd be looking really annoyed because the postman would have hundreds and hundreds of science exam papers that were getting delivered uh, for my dad to sit in the summer holidays marking these exam papers. Now, I shouldn't have, I don't think, but I did look at these and uh, they all kind of followed the same form same sort of pattern. Perhaps if you've sat maybe A-level chemistry, I don't know, or A-level biology, something like that, you'll understand it. So what the students had to do, they had to write up an experiment that they had done in class, write it up, but they had to write it up in three sort of parts, three heads. Maybe you, maybe you know this, maybe you're thinking, yeah, I've, I've had to do this. First of all, the student would have to write about the apparatus that they were going to use for their experiment. You know, what sort of equipment they used, so the apparatus. Then the second thing the student would have to do is write about the hypothesis. You know, they're going to do this experiment in biology. What do they think is going to happen? So your apparatus, your hypothesis, and then the student had to write about the conclusion. They had to face facts. Did the hypothesis turn out to be right or did they make a complete or utter mess of it? So you've got the three things. What are they? The apparatus, the hypothesis, the conclusion... Let's use that. Because look at verse 7 here. Look at it. What, did, what apparatus do the Philistines use? Look at verse 7. In their experiment, the priests tell them, look, have a, have a new cart built. It's got to be new. And then, do you see what they're told to do? They've got to get two cows. Now, there's a couple of really crucial things about the cows. One, the cows have never ever to have pulled a cart before. And the other thing is the cows have got to be female. They've just have calved. Okay? So you've got that. You've got a cart. You've got a couple of cows. That's your apparatus. Okay, what was the next thing? What was the next thing? Hypothesis, wasn't it? Well, what are the Philistines hoping to achieve? Do you see the idea? They're going to send the cow and the cart away in the direction of Israel. 
And if that cart doesn't flicker and doesn't move and it just goes straight in a straight line to Beth Shemesh, then they know that God's been active. But if it moves a bit to the left, it moves to the right, if, it, if the cart turns round, then it's all just this big coincidence. Now you consider with me all the obstacles in God's way. Do you see what they are? These cows have never, ever carried a yoke before. They're going to hate this. They're going to stop or they're going to veer off. They've never done this. And what was the other detail? They've just born calves. You know, the maternal instinct kicking in. These, these cows are going to want to turn around. They want to go back, aren't they? And, and look at what happens. Look at verse 12 here. Verse 12 is brilliant. Look at it. The cows defy Nature, don't they? They go straight in a, don't deviate at all, straight to Beth Shemesh. Do you see what was the third thing? The conclusion? What's the conclusion of the experiment? God has punished them. God has caused their anguish, their pain, the tumors, and the death. And tonight, I want it, to ask you this, how does that truth sit with you? I mean, those three words, that God punishes sin. I mean, how, how, how does that sit, sit with you? I mean, has there ever been a more unpopular truth? And don't you think that just now there's perhaps never been a time in all of history where it's been, uh, it's been less popular? I mean, you live in a society just now that, that just hates this stuff. Doesn't it? I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a society that, that, that promotes the idea, and it's inconsistent, but it promotes an, an idea of tolerance, right? And an idea, again, it's inconsistent, but a, an idea out there of uh, acceptance. Accept anything, no matter how weird it is, no matter how clearly wicked it is, you accept it, and look at us in the here and now. I mean, they would, honestly, they would hate this. The idea that you can be in here tonight worshipping a God who is intolerant. And he is. He's intolerant of wickedness. He is intolerant of sin. Society abhors this idea. So I'm asking you, like, where does it sit with you? How does it sit with you? Well, if it, if it sits nastily with you, remember the first point. God is a God of grace. God is not sitting up in a cloud up there, rubbing his hands with glee, waiting for a time where he can judge people according to improbable, impossible standards. That is not the God of the Bible. What has he done to enable people to avoid this just punishment? What has he done? A great cost to himself. Impossible cost. Immeasurable cost. What has he done? He has provided for sinful men and women... A substitute. Isn't it marvelous? A substitute. Someone to stand in our place to face this wrath and judgment. What does that make the God of the Bible? I suggest two things. It makes him just, doesn't it? Isn't he different from all the other supposed gods? The God of the Bible does not turn a blind eye to sin and wickedness and evil. He is just and he's right. What else does it make him? It makes him loving. He loves his people. 
For him to do this, for him to provide his own son as the substitute. Now this is a God of covenant mercy and covenant grace. I think, friends, rather than repelling you, the holiness of God, it should lead you to praise. So we've seen a people hoping for propitiation and a people hoping for proof. We end with a people hoping for a priest. And people hoping for a priest. And really we're going from a section of scripture, the middle section that I said I loved, to the last section which is quite simply a lovely section of scripture. Or at least it's got a beautiful scene. Don't you think so? Because the people of Israel now, we're away from the Philistines, the people of Israel, they're busy with the wheat. They're busy at work in the fields and they look up to the horizon. What do they see? They see the cows. They see the cart. And they look closely. What's in the back of the cart? And they see it's the ark. And they rejoice, don't they? And they quickly get to, and they take the ark off and they break up the cart and they sacrifice to God and they're jubilant and they're praising, praising God. A beautiful scene. Yep, it's a beautiful scene. I want us to focus on how quickly it turns pear-shaped. You notice what happens? God strikes down his own people. There's a couple of problems there. The first problem is with the numbers. What version of the Bible are you using? Everyone using the church Bible? Anyone using the King James version of the Bible? If you are using the King James version of the Bible, at this point, the figure's very different. And because the King James says that at this point, over 50,000 people are struck down by Almighty God. Over 50,000 people. Now, I'll suggest humbly <laughs> that this is a mistranslation. It's simply, like, it's based on a few things, but based on the fact that there's no way that there's 50,000 people living in Beth Shemesh or the surrounding area at that time. Not a chance. So, we're using the ESV, perhaps, a lot of us. What's the figure? How many people... Does God cut down? Do you see it? I think it's verse 19, is it? Or thereabout. The number is 70. So that's significantly fewer than 50,000, isn't it? 70 people. But still, God strikes down 70 of his own people. So that leads us to the second problem we've got with this. What's the question we're asking? Why? Why does he, why does he kill 70 of his people? Well, some people, they say that it's the way that the ark was handled. That they see the cart and they quickly go to the ark and they grab the ark and they set it up and it's treated as all a little bit hashy and all a bit swift and that's, a lot of people would go with that. I've got a little bit of a problem with that because that's not what the text says. The text in verse 19 actually gives the reason. And it's that they looked at the ark. You see, what did we have in our first reading of Holy Scripture tonight? 
Numbers chapter 4. That was God promising that the ark and everything there had to be covered nearly all the time. Had to be covered in cloth at cost of death. And what's happened here? They've not done that. They've not run up and covered the ark. What have they done? They've run up. Did you notice what they did? They took the ark and they set it up on a stone. And I think the idea here is basically that they've said, look, here's a tourist attraction. And and get everyone round and let's all stare at this ark. We've never seen it. It's been covered. Let's get everyone together. And they've all looked at the ark. Now, if you, you see it, no matter which way this is, if it's that they handled it or if they looked at it inappropriately, you see that it's the same truth, the same problem. What is it? They've, they've not treated the ark with due reverence and respect. They've not, in effect, treated God with due esteem, with due reverence. And because of that, because of the wickedness of their heart, God has struck them down. And I sh- I think in that there's an important lesson for not just us in here, but isn't there a massive lesson for the 21st century church right there? Because what is the message of this last section? What's the message? Is it not that it's not just the pagans, but it's the covenant community that must revere the holiness of God? Isn't that the message of this this end section, it's not just the Philistines. I mean, it's not just the pagans in your life. It's not just the people out there who know nothing of God. It's you and me and, and the church of Jesus Christ who are to be filled with reverence and awe and esteem at the holiness of the God that we profess to love and, and, and worship. And I'm saying to you tonight, isn't that something that should actually practically see something working in your life yours is a holy god that should affect the way that you came into this building tonight yours is a holy god that should affect the way that you interact with people here yours is a holy god that should affect the way that you resolve to battle your sin this week yours is a holy holy god it should affect even how you and i sing In just a moment's time, ours is a holy, 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 holy God. I'll end with this. I want to end by answering the question that the people of Israel ask. Did you notice it? Look at verse 20. Let's look at the question. We're just closing with this. What's the question? They're crying. They're mourning. God has struck down these people. And what do they ask? What do they cry out? They say, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? You can see it, can't you? I mean, this is just a rhetorical question for them. They're just proclaiming, who can stand against this, this level of holiness? Who can, who can deal with this holiness that you would do this? Do you know the answer to the question? Who could stand before this holy God? Friend, you can stand before this holy God. Isn't that the, the wonder of the good news of the gospel?
Because remember how we started this sermon. Remember, Esther. It is about us being suitably dressed. The friends, if by faith and God's grace that we are clothed in the righteousness and the purity and the holiness of God, what's the wonder of the good news? You, me, sinners as we are, we can stand before this God. Let me clarify that. We're not just accepted by any old God. In the gospel, isn't it marvelous? We are accepted by the God of first Samuel 6. That standard of holiness. That God. We are accepted by him in Christ. May it be that we turn from scripture tonight and we turn into this new week. But may it be that we do that praising God for the wonder of what he has done for you and for me in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray.